Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the world of infectious disease. Dr. Schwartzberg is off this week, so we've invited on Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Physician at UCSF's Medical Center. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Chin Hong. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I was hoping that we could start uh, with a, a disease that keeps hitting the news headlines periodically. Uh, most recently in Los Angeles, where the Public Health Department has confirmed over the course of the past week six new cases of MPOX. This was being called monkeypox when it first started making headlines a year ago. I, I guess uh, the public health world came to the conclusion that that was not kind to monkeys nor to the people who are getting sick with it. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through the basics. What do we know about how it's being transmitted and, and which networks it's moving through? So uh, Mpox is a virus, uh, and it's a virus that's pretty stable. It doesn't change too much like COVID. So it means that if you have some immunity against it, that it would likely last for a while. Um, but it's transmitted mainly from skin-to-skin -skin contact and vigorous skin-to-skin -skin contact. So that's why uh, intimacy or sexual contact is probably the best way in which it gets transmitted, not, you know, in the public. And that's why we saw mainly cases amongst men who have sex with men and trans people who have sex with men um, in this particular outbreak that started off uh, around Pride events a year ago. Um, this particular outbreak has been fueled by um, a lot of people traveling globally. So it started off in Europe and then um, came to un United States, Asia, and the epicenters were mainly three cities in the United States, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. But it was also a success story in many ways because I think the community rallied. There was a lot of community-specific information and education and we were able to squash it for much of the last few months. And of course, as people know, uh, they're seeing outbreaks now, or we're seeing outbreaks now in, in Chicago first, uh, a little spike in Los Angeles, some in London, and some in the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia. After you get it um, or get exposed to it, about a week later, you get I think the hallmark rash, mainly in a genital area, but you can also get uh, flu-like symptoms and lymph node swelling. The rash takes about two to three weeks, but it does resolve over time, but they're very, very painful. Some people go to the hospital. Um, a few people uh, do poorly, and there have been about 40 deaths in the U.S., but mainly in people with advanced HIV. Mm. 
Um, the the vaccine that has been deployed to respond to MPOX, how effective is it? Does it, you know, get close to 100% to preventing infection? Yeah, so if you get, so the CDC has published efficacy data recently, and if you get one dose of the vaccine, it's anywhere from 40 to 70% effective. If you get two shots of the vaccine, uh, you can get up to 90% efficacy. Um, and even if you get one shot, uh, it's likely that you would still have some protection against serious disease, uh, meaning that the if you get a rash, it probably isn't as painful as if you were unvaccinated, uh, but that's still being analyzed. Um, but at the end of the day, I think getting two shots, even if there's a big time difference between when you got the first shot, is going to give you a little bit more of an insurance policy against, against getting serious disease. And do we, do we have any good data on how durable the immunity from the MPOX vaccine is now? Does it, does it wane over time like immunity from the COVID vaccine? I think that's being studied vigorously right now in many parts of the world. Um, I think we can learn a little bit from, you know, historically what happened with the the outbreaks in other parts of the world, including West Africa. But it seemed that if you get it uh, naturally, that probably gives you the 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 most uh, immune response. Um, compared to getting a vaccine. But of course, nobody really wants to get this naturally. It's very, very painful and um, it has a big impact on quality of life. You, you're going to be isolated for not just five days like in COVID, but potentially two or three weeks. <clears throat> so I think that that is really the big difference. I think if you get a vaccine, um, you're probably right now from the data we have, you're probably going to diminish your chances um, tremendously from getting hospitalized or genital rash, even uh, from the Chicago data, but probably not eliminated 100%. Again, from the data we know, it, with two shots, uh, it's up to 90%, but not 100%. But still, that's a vast improvement from uh, without having the vaccine. Is there any discussion of a, a booster regimen for people who are at high risk of exposure? I think right now the focus is on getting folks who haven't gotten the second dose to get that second dose rather than uh, thinking about a booster at this point. Um, mm. There's only about 25% of eligible uh, individuals in the United States who have gotten all two shots. Uh, it's a little bit higher in some cities, like where the epicenters were, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. But overall, only about 20%, 25% or 30% of the eligible folks in the country have gotten the both shots of the vaccine. That's why the CDC thinks the probability of having a, a sizable surge in San Francisco, LA, New York is probably only about 35% but much higher in other parts of the country where there's less, um, you know, in, in MPOX, we can talk about herd immunity, less herd immunity, or, or fewer people 
having that force field of immunity to prevent onward transmission. Again, our guest this week, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, uh, sitting in for John Schwartzberg. Peter Chin Hong is professor of medicine and infectious disease physician at UCSF Medical Center. And uh, he's here to answer questions if you've got questions about MPOX or COVID. 1-800-958-9008. 1-800-958-9008. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, since we, we focused this segment most weeks on new COVID information, that's most of the questions we get through our inbox. Uh, one, one theme we have had over the past week uh, is people writing in who did not turn 65 early enough to qualify for the new round of boosters this spring that were approved by uh, the FDA, but have just or are about to turn 65 and are wondering about the advisability of getting boosted now. I will take uh, Carlita as an example of this type of person. Carlita writes, I will be traveling and flying cross country at the end of August for a wedding and I will be 65 at that point. I received all the recommended vaccines, uh, the original being the bivalent booster in October of 2022. Should I wait for the fall edition of the vaccine or would another bivalent booster be a good idea before I travel in August? I think that's a great question from Carlita. Personally speaking, um, it, it probably doesn't, it's not going to be harmful to get that booster for sure. But if Carlita were... Uh, 65, turning 65, but also had other comorbidities uh, like heart disease, lung disease, etc. cetera, uh, I would probably go ahead and get it uh, because it probably won't be until, practically speaking, October or November before the new booster is rolled out because it's like thinking about when you would get the flu shot, even though it might be available in September, some people may wait a little while to kind of time to a potential surge with both flu and COVID in the fall or winter to have the maximum immunity. So I think getting one now for those turning 65 is probably not a bad idea, especially like Carlita, if she's going to be traveling. Many people have, who have gotten COVID recently has been in the context of of travel either abroad or across the country. So it may be a good idea to get that uh, for all of those reasons. 1-800-958-9008 for your questions about COVID or NPOX for Dr. Peter Chin Hong. 1-800-958-9008. Um, okay, a couple of questions about Carlita's situation. How, how long would she be advised, if she got the booster this summer, how long would she be advised to wait before then getting the new reconfigured booster that'll become available in the fall? So typically, um, if you look at the guidance now, it probably would be um, approximately four months. But uh, if there's a new formulation, which is like, likely to be based on XBB 1.5 uh, or the variant that's most likely to circulate right now, um, the FDA traditionally has allowed folks to get that, you know, as soon as uh, two months after the last dose of vaccine. So, you know, I think that it probably won't exclude her from getting or being part of the fall and winter rollout if there's a new formulation, if she gets it now. 
I also realized there was a, a, a second part of her question that I didn't read all the way down to. She asks, is there a downside to receiving too many boosters? There's a theoretical downside um, in terms of your immune system being focused on the original formulation, the original variant, and not what's circulating around. But that's mainly a theoretical um, consideration. It hasn't really been borne out by evidence so far. Of course, on the flip side, if Carlita decided to wait, being 65 and not, say, 75 or older or immune compromised, um, the other way to think about um, protecting oneself in the, you know, if you don't get a vaccine, is to make sure you have access to Paxlovid or remdesivir or molnupiravir. So it's almost like a get out of jail pass where even in people who are not vaccinated, uh, you can have protection as much as 90% protection against being hospitalized if you were at high risk of being hospitalized. Of course, somebody like Carlita is of lower risk of being hospitalized compared to somebody who's unvaccinated. But nevertheless, um, would strongly recommend getting one of those early therapies if um, you know, infection would happen uh, you know, during the summer. That raises an interesting question. I want to read from one other email before we go to our callers um, about Paxlovid access. Uh, you know, when it, when it got full authorization from the FDA, uh, we, we talked some on the air here about how it should be easier for people to secure uh, prescriptions for it because doctors would now have the freedom uh, to to depart from the, the strict prescription criteria that had been attached to the emergency youth authorization. Uh, one of our listeners writes, I was at Kaiser yesterday and asked my doctor for a Paxlovid prescription to take with me on vacation since I'll be gone for several months. I'm over 65 and I'm at risk. I presume that means they have other medical conditions. The doctor said they cannot prescribe it unless the patient has COVID. And another Kaiser doctor who had given a travel prescription was facing consequences. My doctor then went on to say that if I called into Kaiser to report a case of COVID based on a home test, then I would be given a prescription. It seemed like a wink, wink that could be my workaround. I'll probably do it, but it's frustrating that calling in a fake case of COVID is the only way to get Paxlovid for my trip. Um, how how are how are you approaching situations like this? People who are going someplace where they may be exposed and may not have ready access to Paxlovid if they are and would like to have a prescription in their back pocket. I think as a clinician, if somebody is at high risk of getting seriously ill, particularly if they're going to be in a foreign country where I'm not sure of the hospital setting or access to medications, I actually feel very fine about giving somebody a prescription, but it all depends on the health system because strictly speaking, the emergency use authorization for Paxlovid is not authorized for people who are not COVID infected, but the US government has uh, bought about uh, or prepaid for about a billion doses and only about uh, fewer than 20 million have been prescribed. There are a lot of barriers for people getting it and having access to it. So it all depends on your health system. But medically speaking, um, there is very little downside of having a, a prescription to take with you, especially if you're older and immune compromised, um, as long as you check drug interactions and all that. 
But again, it depends on the system that you work in and, and the interpretation of the emergency use authorization. But again, um, well, it's you know, a, it's no longer yeah. an emergency use authorization. It's a, a full authorization. Yeah, it's a full authorization, but in terms of, um, how it was written. That's what I meant, uh, originally. So I think mm. some people are interpreting it in that way. And, um, and, and some systems are still written for it to be systematically given in that way. Um, but again, many people get prescriptions for other, um, medications to take in case they get something, uh, when traveling abroad, like traveler's diarrhea or urinary tract infections, uh, so it, it falls into that realm given the risk-benefit uh, profile. Right. All right, uh, let's go to the phone lines, 1-800-958-9008 for your infectious disease questions. First on the line, we have Joel in San Francisco. Good morning. Good morning, thank you. <clears throat> okay, I had a booster about three months ago, and then uh, Dr. Schwartzberg said that there's going to be a, a, a shot for the new variant in the fall. So, uh, when, when should I get my next, um, you know, shot? Tell us a little bit about you, Joel. Are you, uh, are you over or under 65? 75 years old. 75 years old. Do you have any uh, other medical conditions that put you at higher risk from COVID? Well, I got high blood pressure, kidney disease, and kidney disease. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, well, how, how I, should he be approaching the next round of boosters? Yes, yeah, so if, um, you know, I think, Joel, you'll be well protected at this moment. And if the fall vaccine rolls out, because it is a new formulation, and uh, for those who are at least, you know, it will likely be given to everyone in the population, um, but there will be prioritization, of course, for those who are over 65 and immune compromised above the age of five. So I, I would say that you'll be in good timing uh, to take the fall, expected fall rollout uh, of the new shot. It'll just be one formulation, likely based on XBB 1.16 or 1.5, sorry, together with the flu shot. Um, and, you know, I, I think if you got infected before then, uh, getting access to Paxlovid would be important. Yeah. Um, Joel, Joel is, was, was what you got three months ago, was that your second booster? Were you boosted last fall? It might've been, yeah, it, it was my second. It was hard to get it. I, I Kaiser wouldn't give it to me. And then I had to go to Walgreens. I was considering going to Canada because Dr. Schwartzberg said hey, you can get it in Canada, but <laughs> I avoided that. Wow. It, I mean, it certainly sounds like you are pretty topped off. Um, and also, like, right now, uh, right if there now. is a line for, for the next formulation of the vaccine, you'll be close to the front of the line uh, based on your, your age and your medical September, records. October. Good luck. Thanks for calling in. All right. Yeah. Thank you. 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls, 1-800-958-9008. Um, Dr. Chin Hong, what, what are you seeing in the clinic these days with COVID? Um, we get, uh, you know, kind of a, a minuscule amount of, of public health data now. Case counts look low. Uh, 
but we know that's partly a function of the fact that testing has moved to an at-home setting where things don't turn up in statistics. Uh, sewage levels of COVID look low every time I check those dashboards. Do you see many ca- serious cases in the clinic these days? No, we're not seeing as many cases anymore, Brian. It's the lowest numbers that I've seen since the start of the pandemic. Um, so right now we're in a welcome lull. Um, so I think, you know, it's just a matter of getting ready for a potential storm in the winter and to be on the lookout for any increase in cases in the in the summer. Again, the CDC has updated the way we think about risk in the community just based on the data that's available and what we know about interventions like vaccines and Paxlovid to keep people away from the hospital. Um, so instead of going on cases, they're looking at hospitalization rates and in a, you know, almost in a red and yellow and uh, green kind of traffic light designation on the CDC website. So most of the country is in green right now, again, based on hospitalization data and um, only a few little hotspots in, say, Texas and, and some of the places, but again, a big swath of green. I would encourage people to continue to look at that, look at wastewater. And um, if we're in an intermediate setting, um, you know, uh, everybody who's older and immune compromised is advised to wear masks. When we're in a red setting, uh, then everybody is advised to wear masks and particularly in risky indoor settings. But right now we're kind of in the optional mask wearing uh, area and most people are not wearing masks anymore. But again, encourage folks to be sensitive to those who are uh, because for a variety of reasons, people may not be able to get vaccines or, um, you know, but remain at higher risk. I, the one thing that seems to be missing from that approach is long COVID cases or the risk of long COVID. You know, speaking for myself, I'm, I'm like a, a healthy middle-aged person. I am vaccinated. I am boosted. I am not at all worried about being hospitalized with a case of COVID. Um, I have a friend exactly my age from high school who has been laid flat on her back by, you know, an initially run-of-the-mill case of COVID that turned into something like, that looks like chronic fatigue syndrome. She she just gets episodically disabled um, in the aftermath of her infection. Um, she, she wouldn't register, or people like her would not register under the, the surveillance approach CDC has right now. That's right, uh, Brian, and that's something that will be the legacy of COVID long for many years after we're over with the bulk of COVID serious disease. Uh, it's something we continue to monitor. Um, there are going to be millions of people, unfortunately, who will suffer like that. Uh, and as you know, the NIH is spending a lot of money trying to understand therapeutic uh, approaches to long COVID, uh, there are likely different flavors. So when we say long COVID or uh, post-COVID uh, conditions, it's likely um, a, a, a lot of different diseases that respond to different kinds of interventions, whether or not it's virus that's hidden in, in, in immune cells, uh, whether or not it's um, you know, uh, autoimmune or uh, your own immune system, 
that's gone awry, whether or not it's a microbiome issue, uh, those are all kinds of um, uh, tailored interventions being looked at right now. And the, the one silver lining is that in the Omicron era, at least from U.S. Census data and other sources, uh, it's about half the risk as before Omicron, likely because the Omicron mm. has a lower probability of getting inside the body for a variety of reasons versus, you know, alpha and delta, et cetera. Um, there's a lower risk if you are vaccinated of getting long COVID, and there's a lower risk of getting long COVID if you get access to Paxlovid um, and you're eligible for it um, at the time of infection. So all of these things, right. um, you know, make us... Uh, pay attention to Dr. It. Peter Chin Hong. Sorry, that music means we have run yeah. the clock. Thank you so much for spending another Monday with us. Thanks so much, Brian. That's the voice of Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He's a professor of medicine and infectious disease physician at the UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Schwartzberg is off this week. He will be back next week on Monday, July 3rd. When I will be camping on the Lost Coast, Jesse Strauss will be filling in for me. Uh, either way, if you want to get a question to Dr. Schwartzberg ahead of time, you can shoot an email to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people and we ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.